Good evening and welcome. This is a very exciting evening because it's the, this is the first lecture in the new AGO, so the first of many, many, many. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here. And it seemed appropriate that we would start with the actual building. And who better to talk about it than Linda Milrod, who has been working for the last six years on this project. Uh, working, might I say, with great zeal and enthusiasm, and uh, we're in for a treat with her talk. So Linda Milrod's official title is Reinstallation Director and Senior Project Manager, Program and Design Transformation AGO. She's worked in the art museum field for more than 30 years. She's currently, what I just said, her, and just read her title. She's served the AGO since 1995, first as manager of exhibitions and collections, as acting director public affairs, project director of the Courtauld Collection, and then as director exhibitions and publications before she assumed her transformation AGO responsibilities. Before joining the Art Gallery of Ontario, Melrod's experience took her from coast to coast. She was director of Contemporary Art Gallery Vancouver from 91 to 94, director Mendel Art Gallery Saskatoon, 84 to 90, director Dalhousie Art Gallery Halifax, 79 to 83, and curatorial assistant Agnes Etherington Centre Kingston, 75 to 79. And she started her career here as an intern at the AGO in 74, 75 after completing her art history degree at U of T within one, with one year of art history at University College London, England. So, Linda, please come and tell us about the new wonderful AGO and what, all is, what has gone into it. Hi, everybody. Um, I was more comfortable when Gillian said I was going to give a talk than a lecture um, because I don't have... I don't do lectures. <laughs> I do talks. Um, <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do, first of all, I should say a little bit about what my role was on the project and continues to be for about another month or so. In the senior project management role, I was responsible for working with the staff across the building and putting together the facility program. And that meant, you know, what is it that we wanted to build? What were the different functions in the building? How much space did each of these functions need to take up? And what adjacencies did each of these functions need to have? What needed to be next to what? And delivered that to, to the architects. And then I worked with the architects, and that was a very joyful experience to make sure that the design of the building met our programmatic needs. Um, I was also responsible for signage programs. So if you had any complaints about the wayfinding, see me later. And um, furniture, and I'll say a bit about that tonight. So I'll touch on each of these kinds of uh, roles in the slide presentation tonight. I think it's important to note that I'm not an architect, never have been. And this is the first time I've ever been involved in a building project period, let alone one of such monumental scale. So we were a small team in the project office. Um, most of us were newbies at it. We had a couple of people who actually knew what they were doing and we relied on them a lot. Um, but I'm a pretty quick study, so we got by and I think we had a successful result. Do you remember this? So I'm going to talk a bit about how we got from this to that, which is the only thing that I have in my head now. It's just been too long since we've had the other. And from this, which is, of course, the Grange, the gallery's 
first home, the oldest brick house in the city of Toronto, um, to this, which is what you see in the spring <laughs> if you were to stand in Grange Park and look north. In the course of the design process, we went from this, which is a very early sketch that Frank Gehry made when he was making a presentation to uh, the Board of Trustees. This is back in probably about 2002. And he was making a presentation maybe a bit later, maybe 2003, and he was talking about the kinds of ideas he had. Um, so he stood in front of the board in the boardroom itself, and we opened up the whiteboards that are there. And with a you know, whiteboard pen, uh, he scratched this sketch. This is a plan of the building looking down. This is Dundas Street. And he was imagining at that point a series of towers on Dundas Street. And this is the elevation that he um, drew for us that day. Uh, and I draw your attention to this little squiggle mark. Well, as soon as the meeting was over, thank you very much, Mr. Gary, the, the room emptied out. And immediately a team went in, ripped the <laughs> whiteboard off the wall, <laughs> and um, scurried it away, covered it in glass. It's still hanging in the boardroom today. We replaced the whiteboard with something else. But we went from that to this, which is the official sketch of the building we built. And that's done on uh, yellow-lined paper, if you can't tell on the slide. Just about everything that Frank does in a meeting is collected. He's an enormous archive in Los Angeles, uh, taking up at least 20,000 square feet of models and papers and boxes and things. Um, an enormous Geary archive now. And uh, what ha tends to happen when he leaves the room is that staff scurry around and collect the papers uh, and document them for the archive. This is the AGL. The team, now I'm not going to tell you, every, uh, introduce you to everybody on the team from the Geary office because there had to be at least 25 people who worked on our project there, but these are the people that I worked with uh, most. Um, of course, Frank. Uh, we all know what Frank looks like. He, was a, he is a complicated man, if one would expect, uh, uh, architect of his stature and accomplishment. He is rigorous. He has an extraordinary eye, uh, a very elastic mind. He can be very, very funny, uh, very affectionate. He can be the opposite. He's a normal human being. <laughs> Craig Webb was our design architect. Um, there were three design architects in the Geary firm, and uh, they are the key people who actually work on the design of any particular project under the overall um, supervision, of course, of Frank Geary. Is a very talented architect, uh, Craig Webb. He did the. Um, he was the design architect for the Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles, for the DZ Bank in Berlin, for the Music uh, Amphitheater in Chicago, um, for the Stata Building, I believe, at MIT, and and of course for us. And we were delighted to work with him. Jeff Wauer um, uh, was the project architect. He was kind of the go-to guy. Uh, for all the problem solving around the project. I mean, in a mind like a steel trap, he's still um, on the phone with us almost every day as we finish up all the deficiencies in the building. George Metzger uh, was the uh, partner in the firm who was our project manager for a number of years. He's no longer with the Geary firm. He was succeeded by a guy named Brian Amoth. I don't have any slides of him, and I didn't know him quite as well as I knew George. But one of the interesting things about this slide is this little sample board here. Those are... Samples of titanium, all different colors. 
and our color is somewhere around there. And Kara Cragen. Kara Cragen joined the team um, much later on, summer of 2006. She joined uh, the team when we were starting to work on the design of the Thompson European Galleries, uh, the actual installation design, and uh, has been uh, heavily involved ever since on, on those galleries, the ship model galleries, the furniture program, and other things. She's also leaving the Geary firm at the end of this month, so we'll watch her very carefully. So I want to say a bit about um, the design process, because Frank Gehry's process gets a lot of play. It's not, uh, as I understand it, not being an architect, but as I understand it, not typical of the way most architectural firms work. Um, there's very little drawing. Uh, there's no rendering. You know those beautiful architectural renderings of people in the finished space and you can imagine what the light will be like and all of that. They just don't do that. It's like I don't do windows, I don't do renderings. Um, they work with models. When people say that the Geary office works from the, you know, the design process is from the inside out, it literally is that. It starts with massing models where masses of the building uh, which are calculated, you know, size by function, the facility program that I was mentioning earlier, um, they, they start getting played with like blocks. Uh, and only until the, um, uh, the adjacencies are worked out, the spatial things are worked out, what's going where, do they start thinking about the actual design and then work out from that to see how this building's going to face the street. These, th what I showed you before and this one are the very earliest styrofoam uh, massing models. So this, for example, that's the Grange House. <laughs> this is the George Reed building that's, that's part of OCAD. Um, and even at that very, very early stage, uh, note this piece here um, on the south end of the building. So there were a number, I mean, like there were hundreds of these. There were hundreds of these massing models. Each of these blocks would represent a specific function and volume of space, not necessarily in the particular shape that it would end up, but just how much space a particular function would take up. And we play around with these uh, uh, and look at different ways of doing it. Well, just to orient you a bit, uh, this would have been Dundas Street here, Beverly Street here, McCall Street down there. This is Dundas and McCall. So there was um, a lot of effort at one point thinking about that corner as being the primary place where the building was going to grow, um, where the Moore sculpture is. I think our attachment to the Moore sculpture was part of the reason why this didn't really quite work out, as well as the, t the, the height and shadows that cast. But note all these little blocks with little notes on them. They're all delineating function and volume of space so that we can pl play around with uh, positioning and adjacencies. But really what had legs in the early days was this notion, as Geary was sketching in the boardroom, of a series of towers along Dundas Street. So these are the houses across the street, this, is, this was one of the imagined configurations, early configurations. There we are again, a slightly different one. And the idea was in those days um, that the central tower uh, would house in different floors and different content the Thompson gift of art. So I should just backtrack a bit and say two sentences about that. I 
I come to this making a certain assumptions about what you know and what you don't know. But of course, the whole genesis of our project, what the impetus, was this extraordinary gift of art that Ken Thompson um, uh, promised to the Art Gallery of Ontario, uh, a collection of about 150 ship models, uh, historic sh European ship models, a collection of about 1,000 European objects from the medieval era to the 19th century, about 800 um, paintings of Canadian art, and a number of other things. And so one idea the, early on was to look at a central tower that a different would show different parts of that collection floor by floor, and adjacent towers, which would be connected by walkways, would have similar content from the rest of the collection. So we would have these very meaningful adjacencies between the gift and the rest of the AGO collection. That was a high goal. We really, the, the, the donor was, was anxious for the collection to be seen in its entirety in a kind of discreet way within the building, not integrated with the rest, uh, but was to totally open to um, us creating meaningful adjacencies with the rest of the collection. And this, is, this, was, this scheme was going to allow us to do that, we thought. Um, just other examples of this, and I note this little squiggle again that you saw in the sketch is now finding some physical form in these very rough models, working models. Here's a scissor stair that was at one point imagined to face the street. Look how high these towers would have been relative to the domestic scale across the street. More. Then they took that same model and started wrapping sandpaper around the central tower, thinking about materials and shape. But again, you're seeing this. And then the scissor stair went from the street to behind that central tower. We worked very hard from the get-go to, to run a very disciplined process around the building of this building. I think that's one of the reasons why we were successful in terms of our scheduling and budgeting on the project, is that from the very beginning, we had our general contractor, even when we were in schematic design phase, we had all of our uh, engineers uh, lined up, mechanical engineers and, and uh, others. Um, so we took these schemes, and this was one of the last ones of this, of this kind, and we costed them at every step. In the end, as you know, because you're here, we didn't do this. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting to see things that have continued. This walkway again has found its way into as the Gallery Italia behind our current facade. This is the opened up uh, Henry Moore Center coming onto that walkway and you can see that there are different galleries along this, even in this very early thing, thinking about different galleries getting you onto an exterior street walkway. So that idea kind of survived. But in the end, what happened here um, was we had to demolish um, close to half the building in order to rebuild this. It was going to add well over $10 million to our budget, which we felt was unacceptable. And in the end, too, we weren't achieving some of our significant uh, programmatic objectives with the new building. For example, this scheme wasn't going to get us a dedicated hosting center. Every museum now needs one of those things. We need to be able to run private events and get a lot of revenue from that kind of activity and we didn't want to have to take over gallery space to do that anymore. So that was really important to us, and we couldn't achieve it in this scheme. The other thing was that this scheme was going to bring us, the idea was that we would be uh, right at street grade, that you would walk from street grade straight into the building, not have to step up. And that was a lovely idea, that it would be accessible, transparent. But in fact, 
McCall Street is significantly lower in grade than Beverly, and the, what would need to have been done to create, to, um, to uh, achieve that kind of um, design um, profile was going to be very, very difficult for us to achieve. So we all took a very deep breath with the Geary office and said, after about two years, um, that we've not shown anything to the public yet, uh, let's rethink this. And we did. So because Frank works this way uh, from the inside out and, and makes sure that all the interior things work first and that we're achieving the program first and then figuring out how it will address the street and the exterior, our, we found that the media was getting very frustrated with us. They thought we were keeping secrets and all that kind of thing, but we really weren't. We didn't know yet what this thing was going to look like. So they started playing around. Remember that very first styrofoam model I showed you? The tower in the back, uh, some new build in the front. They started going back to the beginning. And then, they, then you know, what I'm going to show you now, I'm not going to go into great, great detail about how the whole thing worked out, but I want to show you the evolution of the facade. So this was a very early idea. Looks very, quote unquote, Geary-esque. Just play with the kinds of forms that when we think Frank Geary, we imagine in our heads. It doesn't make any sense on the street <laughs> or any relationship to the domestic architecture across the street, and it didn't last very long as an idea. Because from Frank's point of view, it was, it was gratuitous. It didn't mean anything. And of course, we agreed. They took those, that, that was imagined to be titanium, that titanium, those shapes, and they kind of flattened it out. And then we had a whole series of, of facade solutions that were this you know, very flat, straight curtain glass that went, curtain wall, that went from McCall to Beverly Street. And of course, that kind of stretch stayed in the vocabulary, but how we got there differed. So this is titanium and glass. And what you see on the street was an idea that actually lasted for some time. We, we really couldn't realize it. But the idea was that we would do something architectural to the actual surface of the street in front of the building to define a precinct for the AGO. And when we realized that this was going to be a really impossible maintenance issue for the city of Toronto, let's not think about metal, let's not think about clay, let's, you know, all these other paving stones, other things we were thinking about, let's think. We started thinking about paint and the signage consultants got involved. Maybe that's an idea for down the road. And this was one of the ones that really delighted me along the way. They started getting very interested in glass that had images embedded in it. This is a forest. Imagine a forest on Dundas Street today. It's kind of an interesting idea. Um, and uh, from the point of view of um, the LA architects, very Canadian. But we passed on that one as well. And the next thing that happened was that they felt that the curtain wall was really too cold and too rigid, and they started shaping it. And we got this visor shape happening. And then, well, that reminded them of the sea, and Frank, got, Frank is a sailor, and Frank got totally enamored of, of Ken's um, ship model collection uh, and, and totally enamored of Ken as well. He and Ken became very close friends. Um, and being a, a, a lover of Van de Velde, he started imagining a, re a giant reproduction of a Van de Velde painting of ships at war on the facade of the Art Gallery of Ontario. 
It was just keep trying things, think it through, try this, try that. This is a proposal that Bruce Mao Design made to turn the whole facade into one giant sign. And this is the one we unveiled in, in January of 2004 when we unveiled the schematic design. So it had that basic uh, shape. Uh, the, it was still titanium and glass. The titanium was greatly reduced. The glass portions uh, imagined to be used for marketing purposes, to announce collections and projects going on inside the building. We had still had the tower at the back. It turned from pink to blue. These are the uh, skylights, three of the five skylights that are on the top of that tower. And this is what, at the, t at the end of schematic design, was in the plans. Design doesn't end there, though. It went into the uh, design development process, the DD phase of the project. And um, you know the media seeing this was talking about hockey rinks and visors and airports, and I don't think any of those um, uh, comparisons satisfied the Gary team very much. It really wasn't what they were after. Um, so the next thing we saw was the development of these little wings that now address the street, east and west. Of course, the primary way to see our building is from the east and from the west. You really can't get much distance straight on. And so these address the east and the west axis, and the titanium was brought onto the skirt, which was also a new development in the design development phase. And of course, this is where we ended up, the model of where we ended up. And uh, Frank always imagined, and we haven't done it yet, that these two wings facing east and west could be used to um, uh, apply transparencies to announce what's going on inside the building. This wonderful skirt that really unifies the entire facade from, from McCall to Beverly has a double function. It's also the gutter that collects all the snow, water, ice, you know, uh, that then drains down here and down the columns that supports this, this structure. And just to remind you what it looked like before the hoardings came down, just before the hoardings came down. So inside that facade, as the, as the ideas were being um, worked through, the inside went through, followed pace, thinking about what, how this would be built if it were a flat piece of uh, curtain wall, uh, if it was flat and slanted, what would that sculpture gallery look like? It still had titanium on the outside, so you have this big shadow cast on the, on the back wall. Then they started looking at this, this curvature and the, what the space would look like behind it. This is a still from uh, the CATIA uh, program that they use to really work out the geometry and all the curvilinear forms of their buildings. So this is the Galleria Italia drawn by the computer. I love these drawings. And here we are, of course, today, realized. And from the other direction, there. I'm assuming you've all been there. Has anyone not been in this space? Okay. I'm going to finish early. You're going to run up there. We went through a similar kind of process on the south face. This is a complicated thing, too, because it faces the park, and the park is an urban park in a net residential neighborhood, and the neighbors care a lot about this park. Um, so how was this going to face the park? The first idea was a flat, kind of mirrored the ideas that were going on on the other side, a flat piece of curtain wall that 
actually flew by the edges of the building. So here's the edge of the building, and the glass went beyond it. And then you'd have these tra this great transparency into the three floors of this tower, this being the hosting center that I talked about earlier, and these two floors being for contemporary art. This is what we uh, was on the model when we unveiled schematic design back in January of 2004. Again, the idea of having an image embedded in the glass, they, while they had already um, uh, moved on from that idea on the north face of the building, it was still here on the south. And I think the whole idea here was that you're facing the lake, in fact, from any of these floors here, here, or here, and if you've been in the building and looked out through those uh, glazed elements down John Street, you can see the lake, literally, even on a cloudy day, um, from any floor in that tower. So I think it was like lake to lake, water to water. Um, but in the end, I think they decided it was just a bit corny um, and started looking at how the south face could use wood and glass the way the north face was going to. This is the, this is the uh, scheme that was presented to the neighborhood. They hated it. They absolutely hated it. It felt like an office tower. We couldn't disagree. So the work continued for quite a while to get us to where we are today. This is, it. This is the model before it was clad, where they decided to bring the titanium around from the other three faces to the south face, reduce the um, glazing to a kind of T-shape there, um, as you see it here, and then add this wonderful staircase mirroring the grand one on the other side, which I'll get into in a second, um, to connect the two floors of the Center for Contemporary Art. That staircase just connects those two floors. And that was influenced by, by artists. There were a lot of people involved in our project. We didn't, uh, we didn't uh, do this uh, in isolation. We talked to a lot of people along the way. And one of the groups that we spent a lot of time with was a group of uh, local artists in Toronto who met with us over several meetings to help us imagine um, what these two floors should be architecturally, what kinds of spaces did we require, how many big ones, how many little ones, for what purpose, not only thinking about the collection that we already own, but the collection that might come in the future, how will artists be working five years from now, ten years from now, what should we try to prepare our building for. So we have a pretty um, wired space up there that's in, does, is intended to be for just about anything that artists might throw at us, and we have yet to be tested on all of that, of course. But one of the things that the artists did say was, we want to make sure that visitors on either of those floors know that the other floor exists. We want a very visible connection. We don't want them to think, come to the fifth floor and think they've seen it all. And so that was happening at the same time that the architects were struggling with how to finish off this south facade, and Frank said, okay, here's an idea. And that's what we did. And this is what it looks like now. We're almost, I think we're pretty much finished this stair, now finishing the exterior cladding. This is titanium. Um, the only other building he used it in, in any way extensively is at Bilbao, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, and you can see how kind of bubbly it is, pillowy. It's a metal that's very strong, but very pliable in thinner gauges. And so this is tiled on in sheets, in rectangular sheets. Uh, in the earthquake pattern that the Geary office favors. And um, it does just naturally pillow and ripple. And on a really windy day, you can watch it kind of ripple. And it's lovely because it softens a very hard, um, a hard rectangular box. The color was chosen um, 
to uh, be compatible with the sky, at least in the spring and other times of year. Uh, and there are moments where it almost disappears when the sky really is that blue. So they were really trying to, in this scheme, bring all the new build. You know, we didn't expand our, floor, our footprint on the ground in any way. They wanted to bring the new build in from the street, um, set it back from the park, make it compatible with the park. And the height was um, very much dictated by the height of OCAD, which was already well in play when we started building our building. Ours um, is a little higher. No competition between architects. And this is what you look through um, on those floors through beautiful adjustable uh, wooden louvers uh, to the city beyond. This is the kind of view you get. And that is the lake right there. So when you're down there and you look up John Street, you see us. We really are a very visible destination um, at the north end of John Street, and we like that. The whole idea of this as well, because transparency was a big goal of ours, we meant it uh, literally and figuratively. From a literal point of view, we wanted people to really understand that they were in Toronto when they were visiting this museum. And you can't, you know, there's the CN Tower, you're in Toronto. Um, when you're in a museum and there's no windows, depending on what collection you're in, if you're in an impressionist room, you could be just about anywhere in the world. You kind of forget where you are. And one of the joys of Frank's buildings, and I've been in other of his art museums as well, is this, this regular opportunity to get a glimpse outside, know where you are. It's very restive. It makes you stay longer. It makes you relax. You don't, you know. <laughs> and uh, we, we wanted that. So we got it on both sides of the building, and it's great. So that scissor stair that was a concept in those early, early drawings didn't happen other than a very much more modest one between three floors. But we did uh, uh, build a pretty spectacular staircase. And if you haven't been on that yet, that's something to look forward to as well. Uh, this is a very early model of it. So this is Walker Court, the central heart and historic part of our building. It was built in the 1920s. And uh, we really wanted to respect uh, the court, but what they did there I think the greatest part of our building, personally, it's my favorite part, um, was remove a flat uh, ceiling, replace it with a, a, um, a glass roof, rip out from the ground floor level the uh, barrel vaults that used to be here, and for the first time ever, bring people up to the second floor level up on these walkways right around the court. And then at that level, float this stair from the second floor to land at each floor, that's the third, then the fourth, then off the screen, the fifth floor, right through the glass roof. Very early paper strip model of that, followed by a more sophisticated model. At that time, we were thinking this whole business above the roof line would be boxed in in glass. Now it follows its own shape with curved glass. This isn't quite the way it ended up either, these shapes. This is a more accurate model of how we actually built it. When uh, we did the uh, schematic design unveiling uh, and people were looking at these models, uh, one of the questions he got was, why, why are those stairs so narrow? And he said, well, you know, 
I want people to kind of bump into each other on these stairs. I want people to fall in love on my stairs. And you do bump into people because they are narrow and they get narrower and wider and narrower and wider. And sometimes the wall of the stair is quite high and sometimes it's lower. So sometimes you're actually enclosed by the stairwell and sometimes you can see over. You can literally at points touch the roof rafters in Walker Court. You can touch the, I shouldn't tell you this, the architectural uh, ornamentation along the edges of the walls. Um, It's an amazing experience to be right under the roof of a room like that. And then you go right through the glass. So this is what it looks like now. Uh, They make very good models in the Gary office. They may not do renderings, but they do very good models. When you see a finished model in their offices, you know what that building's going to look like. Um, For this, we actually, when, when they were really trying to get us to understand this, because a lot of people at the AGO had a hard time imagining Um, such a sculptural element in our Walker Court, our revered Walker Court. So they made a very large model of it, and when we were down in Los Angeles at one point, they raised this up on a thing, um, took out the floor of the model, and stuck a chair underneath, and one by one, we sat down with our heads inside the model, you know, looking up the stairs. And we thought, okay, yeah, I think this will (laughs) work. Around that time, too, I made my first and only trip to Bilbao because I, I was, it was time for me to start seeing what he was really all about. And there they have a central atrium that kind of goes right through. And any, just about anywhere you are in the building, if maybe some of you have been there, you can understand where you are in relation to that central atrium. And I came out understanding entirely what he was doing with Walker Court. There are very few places in the building where you don't know where you are in relation to this court and therefore where you are in relation to the exit. So it's comforting to know that you're in Toronto, or just basically where you are. It's also comforting to know how to get out when you're ready. Uh, People do get nervous about that. So uh, we find that people are staying a lot longer. A few other shots. So those curvilinear elements that we so associate with Frank, he was dealing with a renovation project here, not a new build. There's 200,000 square feet of renovation, about 100,000 square feet of new build. He He was... given a building to work with, and he respected that. So all the curvilinear elements, it's a very neoclassical building, our building. So he introduced the Baroque through the circulation elements, the staircases that I've pointed out, this entrance ramp. Originally, this was going to be straight, and that didn't last much for any time at all. It became a sculptural element, but if you look closely, you'll realize that it isn't, this isn't how it was built. See how open these openings are here with these walls here and here a much more traditional style desk there, it eventually became like this, where these elements were really closed up quite tightly, and this is the information desk continuing that curve, and just like the other stairs, you have some high walls and lower walls, so you can be enclosed or not, you can look down, Um, and this is how it is today. It's really very beautiful. And Walker Court in the model Again, just to emphasize that one of the great achievements, in my opinion, of this building is that he took Walker Court, which again was uh, a very important room, historic room in the building, and he turned it from a room in a building to a building in the building. Um, And to be able to experience it, and I really invite you to do that, to be able to experience it that way on two floors is a really remarkable thing. And I have a pretty good visual imagination, and I thought I could imagine it just like I thought I could imagine the stairs until I got on them the first time. Um, When they started building them, I couldn't believe how massive they were. But nothing could have prepared me for the actual experience of, of of, 
of Walker Court inside the building. And for me as well, it is um, a theme that is repeated. You'll see when I show you the Thompson European galleries and the contemporary galleries how the, the notion of a room within a room, the box inside of a box, uh, becomes not a you know, hugely repetitive theme, but it's there. So now I want to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit, how am I doing for time, talk a little bit about um, the installation process. That was the other big part of my responsibility. Here we're down in the Los Angeles um, uh, uh, studios. They're in Marina del Rey. Uh, Craig Webb, Kara Cragen, who you met earlier. This is um, uh, Christina Corsilia, who was our curator of European art, but left partway through the project, and then we kept her on contract to complete um, the Thompson European galleries. This process of designing these galleries started three days after Ken Thompson died. Um, he was supposed to be there. And um, um, so we gathered anyway. <laughs> and we spent some time talking and reminiscing, and then we just got to work, as we knew he would want us to do. So we started with reminding ourselves at a very high level of what we had already decided in terms of what objects get grouped with what objects. We're talking about a 1,000 objects here in about eight little rooms. Uh, which objects are going to have their own vitrines, which are going to be grouped with others, and which are going to be, what's the sequence through the rooms. And then using life-size reproductions that we took months to make, you know, reproducing um, every object in the collection to scale and mounting it on foam core. Uh, and then we shipped those things down to Los Angeles. They, in turn, made size-as mock-ups of tables and cases and wall units um, so we could start placing these things and determine not only the groupings but the spaces between, the height of, uh, of uh, risers for the objects, the scale of the tables, um, um, looking at it from all different angles. This was a... This was a interesting, you know, we, we knew we had lots and lots of wall space to fill, and these are tiny, tiny objects, and if you've been in there, you know what we mean. So how do we, uh, how do we make small objects come alive on long, uh, low walls? Frank kept an eye on us from time to time, dropping in. Um, and if you go into those galleries and you see that these groups of objects on the wall are on panels that are then mounted on other panels, it was his idea to start uh, addressing those groupings by backing them up with uh, different size panels, which really got us into a whole discussion about materials. And you'll see what I mean when you go to visit. So we would do all this, we would decide on where these objects would go, which would be on shelves, what would be mounted directly off the wall, that kind of thing, and then we would trace them all and assign their collection numbers to it so that they could then be reproduced into um, elevations, color elevations, that could then be, in turn, put back into a model. So this is a model of the space, a section of a model of the space, where, and this took a long time, guys, <laughs> but where every single object is reproduced to scale on the backing board that it was going to be on, with the color of the fabric that we had determined was appropriate for that one. We had gone through a whole exercise of choosing the fabrics, making sure they were conservation sound, uh, and then choosing the colors of the fabrics and choosing the materials for everything. Uh, these are uh, signify the label decks. We made sure as we were planning this that there was always a wheelchair in the room so that we could test everything we're doing from, a wheel, from the point of view of someone sitting in a wheelchair. This is how we did it throughout the entire building, by the way but I'm just showing you European right now, the Thompson European collections. So here we have um, 
the, in the model, um, the scriptorium where the medieval manuscripts are, a little room within the room. We have this room, which is devoted to memento mori objects. Um, this is clad in copper. This is clad in granite. Um, and it, we realize it almost identically to what this is in the model. Another view. Take a little special note of this little model bench back here. We'll come back to that. The treasury, those two cases exist. This case exists. We did all of this. Um, and it's pretty much exactly as we originally imagined. We, we made changes, of course. And of course, the ultimate destination is the Massacre of the Innocents in the Rubens Room. There it is overall. There it is installed. A little yellow, that slide. And we did the same thing for ship models. So um, we worked with Christina Corsilia, as I mentioned, with the European collection. She had a, a range of experts that she relied on as well uh, for the ship model collection. This is Simon Stevens. He is the curator of ship models at the, Museum of Mar the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, England. He was our kind of adjunct curator on this project. He was fantastic. If anyone can get you excited about a ship model, um, this guy can. Uh, so he helped us really understand the collection. He helped us group it. This is where the Geary office started. Now, has anyone been downstairs to see the ship models yet? I hope. This is nothing like we ended up. So they were just, part of this was just trying to figure out if we had enough space, you know, these were all to scale. Um, if everything had its own case, how, do we have enough space in the room? Here's an idea that kind of stuck, this floor-to-ceiling wall case at the north end of the room. Thinking about how to address these openings in the ramp above. about suspending them. In fact, we are suspending ship models, but not quite this way. And then we got to this kind of scheme. Now, it's changed again as well, because these long curved cases were separated. There's a break here and here. There's actually four cases, four smaller ones instead of two huge ones. But this is pretty much as it is. These are pretty much, this is just a, a model of the room. And even at that point, imagine that we would at one point, we thought we'd be able to talk Ken into buying some marine paintings, but he really wasn't interested. But he said, borrow them, borrow them. So the National Maritime Museum was very generous and has allowed long-term loans of mar mar marine paintings that you'll see in the gallery as well. And they've also lent us a, an actual ship's masthead. So you've got to go down and see that. Another view of that. And this is, of course, uh, not quite where we are. We worked with, for both the casework in the... Um, European galleries and the ship model galleries, and we did an international competition for case makers. It was a real treat for us. The Art Gallery of Ontario has always just designed and built its own cases, and for the first time ever, we were going to get to work with a real museum, you know, case maker. Uh, Click Netherfield, just outside of Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, won the won the competition. They have been absolutely fantastic, doing miraculous things with glass and wood. Uh, and realizing the Geary designs. Um, this is in their, in their workshops in Scotland. 
Uh, we were there in February of 2007 for the first mock-up of the cases. So this is an eight-foot test of an actual case and um, made of the materials and everything. So everything in this is custom, of course. The whole system of how we're going to mount the ships, the floor of this, which is all intersecting puzzle pieces which carry um, uh, stainless steel mounts for the ships or suspending them from above, as you see here. The lighting system was custom designed. It was truly an international effort with Click Netherfield in, in Scotland, the Gary office in um, um, Los Angeles, the Art Gallery of Ontario here, the Thompson family here, very involved, um, the National Maritime Museum in London, the mount maker was also British. We were all there, and um, actually, when they unveiled this, they kind of opened a curtain, I got very choked up. It's hard, hard to get moved by casework, but I'd never seen anything quite like this. And that's what it is now. We're not quite finished this room. There's a couple of cases that need to be finished. We were still installing at that point. See, that's missing. <laughs> There's probably a ladder back there somewhere. Um, but you can see how some of them are suspended. Some of them are coming from the ground. There's lighting in the floorboards, etc. And this is that wall case that was always in, even at the early conception, that you can see from the before gate corridor across the way from our Inuit visible storage, another kind of transparency at the AGO. So we went through this process, in fact, with all the, you know, we had this kind of attention paid to the Thompson gifts with the special, the uh, dedicated case makers and the Geary office involved. The rest of the installations were designed by in-house uh, designers. We modeled every single room in the building. We modeled all of the artwork, much more than actually got on display as we were we were shortlisting and finalizing and finessing what was going to end up there and what wasn't. Because really the only way we could do it was through models. We didn't have access to the spaces. The spaces were still being built. We did most of the installation in the last three to four months, and that is fast. When we did, um, you know, we did a lot of trips hither and thither, and we went down to Detroit a few times because they've opened up an expansion, and we went down before they opened and then again after they opened, and I asked my counterpart there how long they had for installation, and uh, she said, 18 months. And I said, oh, 18 months. And she said, oh, I know. People just can't understand how we could do it so fast. I decided not to share how much time we really had. <laughs> um, but our goal was to have all 110 galleries installed for opening. And I tried very hard to prepare my director that that may not be possible. He had deaf ears to that. And we did it. So this is the fourth floor. Maybe that's the fifth. Can't remember. This is, and this is Canadian wing. I said, there's, a, there's an element we didn't build. <laughs> Doesn't look quite like this. The salon. And, and we use these models not only to position every artwork and to, to, to firm up installation strategies, but also all the interpretive strategies and where seating was going to go, where text panels were going to go, where audio stations were going to go, what the juxtaposition should be, and tremendous amount of debate over this. Uh, we had several teams working on different content areas. I ran two different approval committees. 
to uh, approve all the things. And even when we were on the floor installing, changes kept happening. Throughout the installations, you'll notice, we wanted to make sure there were contemporary interventions around. You'll, you'll see contemporary art all over the building, even in the historic galleries. And we also wanted to make sure that there were significant artists invited to celebrate the new building with us through new projects. Um, so this is Giuseppe Pannoni, a renowned artist from Turin, Italy, sculptor, and we thought that he would be the appropriate person to, um, uh, to launch the Galleria Italia. The Galleria Italia, by the way, which is that gallery, that extraordinary space behind the facade, got its name because 26 Italian families in an unprecedented um, gesture of Italian community support, unprecedented, uh, each agreed to give a half a million dollars to support Transformation AGO. They were approached by a member of our board, a member of the Italian community, also on our board, by saying, you know, we don't want any more than half a million dollars from you, but we don't want any less. And the goal was 20 families, in the end it was 26. So we called it this, in their honor, Galleria Italia, and each of the timbers, when you go and visit, you'll, you'll be able to see on the timbers each of the family names that helped us out with this. So we was, I thought it was appropriate to start with an Italian artist. This is a really great uh, installation. All of these pieces on the wall, uh, he carved new for the installation. This was an extant piece, uh, a cedar tree that he rescued from Versailles after the hurricanes. And what he's done with all of these is reveal the young tree inside the tree by carving into it to take us back to some 200 years for this one, I think. Frank Stella, another great artist, name you'll recognize, American artist, um, installed this extraordinary two pieces that hang in the light well of the cafeteria uh, that you can see from the cafeteria and from the restaurant Frank. And there are others as well. There's um, Sherry Boyle in the uh, European Old Masters. There's Kara Walker in the European Old Masters, uh, a young American artist as well. So Canadian, American, European artists all participating with new commissioned work um, for our transformation. I want to close by a little series of slides um, about the, the Geary bench. Um, so the furniture program, we had this much money and this much ambition. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me. We had two wonderful partners helping us with the furniture program. The Canadian company that worked with us is Technion. They're a high-end office furniture company. They provided the furnishings for uh, all the new offices as well as um, many of the black leather bolster-backed benches that you see throughout the gallery, the furniture in, in the entrance hall. And uh, the Royal Danish Consulate in Toronto the Royal Danish Consulate approached us uh, as they had in New York from MoMA saying, you know, we really would like to see Danish design in this extraordinary building and we can help you get there. And so all the furniture that you see in the restaurant, the cafe, the espresso bar on the fifth floor and the members lounge is all Danish design um, that we were able to acquire at a small fraction of its value due to the efforts of the consulate, the embassy and the Ministry of Culture in Copenhagen. The Danes are now my very close friends. But it was Technion, the Canadian company, that got us onto this idea of asking Frank Geary to design a gallery bench for us. Because they had the idea that, that um, wouldn't it be great for them to increase their public line of furniture um, 
this way and launch it at the AGO and then we'd, there'd be an international market, et cetera. It got very complicated. It didn't work for the Geary office. It didn't really work for us. It didn't really work for Technion in the end. Um, although, of course, we remain very good friends with everyone. But the idea of having Frank do a bench for us, we liked that idea. So we asked him to, and we got the board to agree to an investment of so many thousands of dollars to get us to the point where we could make a decision. We were prepared to invest a certain amount of money in the design and risk that money. If we didn't like what we got, if we didn't think it was comfortable, we weren't going to buy it, and they knew it. So we became very tough clients. So you'll see this all over the building. One of our interests of doing this was to make, because not, the whole, not every room in the building you know, is touched by Frank Geary, so we wanted the Geary language to bridge those parts of the building that weren't designed by Frank, let there be a, a, a Geary element through the furniture. Remember that bench I pointed out in the uh, slide of the model of the European? In the New York Times on Friday, December 22, 2006, there was this article uh, uh, that featured this image of a Biedemeyer bench, and Craig Webb clipped it, photographed it, said, let's do something like this. <laughs> and so he immediately started making these little wooden models, and that became the bench. But you can see, you can see that uh, this kind of shape was the inspiration. Knowing that we didn't want to spend an enormous amount of money they devised, and this is Kara Cragen was the lead designer on, on this project. They devised a scheme where they would use their classic favorite material, which is Douglas fir plywood. And out, out of um, one set of sheets, you know, one, how many sheets of plywood? I think it takes 18 sheets of 4 by 8 plywood. They would make two benches. So they would cut these shapes then they would hollow out those cuts to create a kind of skeleton with the, with the piece of wood that was cut out, they'd make another bench. So out of one set of plywood sheets, you get two benches. So Kara started calling them Adam and Eve. Uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, Frank's never been totally comfortable with that. It's a bit too biblical for him. Uh, but we still... Uh, lovingly, you know, kind of affectionately call it the Adam and Eve benches. So they were always conceived to be in three parts and to be very flexible in how they could be used. This shows the skeleton pieces being um, cut and sorted. This is a layout of how a, a single sheet could be cut. And I've highlighted these negative spaces here because they became the shapes for the two different shaped tabletops in our cafe. So they called these Cain and Abel. <laughs> Again, not official. We had to go down, you know, we, we, we looked at various models and various design books and we liked what we saw, blah, 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 let's keep going, let's keep going. We got to the point where we would do a um, uh, a mock-up, a, a size as fabricated plywood, full set, Adam and Eve bench for us to see and test. So this is, this is Kara. Uh, this is um, Tomas Olitsky. He built them. He built them. Um, that's me. And we are, I went down with the head of our design studio at the AGO 
to try these things out. Now, I sat on these things for about four hours. It was incredibly comfortable. But there were two big issues. One was this. Uh, when we separated the units and sat on it as a chair, we were just sliding right off, you know? Um, so that was a big part of the comfort issue. Uh, and the other thing was how to attach the upholstery to the bench. So Tomas had tried this kind of thing, which is where we thought we were going. The leather is belt leather. So you know that heavy leather that you literally use to make belts with? Uh, that's the leather. So it's, very, it's not very pliable. It's very stiff. Um, and this wasn't working at all. So he came up with the idea of laminating the leather much like the way the wood is laminated. So here's laminated leather. And this is against the laminated wood. It's all glued. It's just the edges that are laminated. So it's like a frame. They don't have all the slides here, but a frame of laminated. And then the cushion was set inside that. And then the top layer put on top of that. They are extraordinarily comfortable. The other thing they did to address the sliding issue is they scooped out this little bum bucket <laughs> um, in, the, uh, in the shape of the bench. And once they did that, they felt they had to angle this back. And so this, the proportions of this changed a bit to end up with something like that. This is, um, just to take the um, analogy, the final step. We showed David Thompson the bench idea, and he liked it very much and was hoping to, you know, we would include it in some of the Thompson Canadian collection galleries, which of course we have. But he said, you know, you've got Adam and Eve. You need a serpent. Um, so that's what this is. We have a few that are narrower they're Adam and Eve serpents. We made the same way, you know, where one can, out of one sheet you can cut the material for both. But again, you can see how adaptable they are. And we use them in this configuration not as much as in all the other configurations that you'll see around the building. And this is how they look in Walker Court. And that's the end. Anyway, that's it. Thanks very much, everybody. I just want to thank Linda very much, and I have to say that throughout the whole thing, you can imagine how stressful it was. She was always like this. <laughs> she was always on and enthusiastic and positive, and yes, this can happen. The one thing that that's really strikes me about the new AGO is how much uh, human use of the space has been considered, that form and function truly, truly are balanced in this place, and that doesn't always happen with, with new builds, new, with new architecture.